Well, hello there and welcome back into the latest edition of the SportsMediaWatch.com podcast. I am the somewhat capable host, fresh back from the West Coast, and my goodness, what a, what a whipping the San Francisco 49ers gave my Tampa Bay Buccaneers as I come back a little a little more rested than I was uh, this past weekend when we did the special conversation on this podcast feed about the passing, the untimely, awful circumstances on the passing of U.S. soccer journalist Grant Wall at the World Cup. We did that this weekend. I hope that a lot of you uh, got a chance to listen to that dialogue, listen to that conversation. We're going to get a further update today. So I am back. I am uh, a little more rested. It's good to be back with Dr. John Lewis. I can see yeah. him, even though if you folks can't see him. Good to see you. Good to be back with you uh, here as we're ready for another edition of the show. Final couple of shows really for this year. We're almost done with 2022. How are you feeling? Oh, you know, just getting by, you know, it's that time of year. Uh, certainly a lot of uh, sad stuff in the news lately, the death of Grant Wall, the death of Mike Leach. Yes. Uh, even even though he's fine, the the situation with Bob Rathbun. So, you know, it's been a kind of a crummy end of the year, certainly. Reality checks all around us, that is for sure. So however you found our little podcast here, we continue to grow. Thank you for the help. On this podcast feed, the Sports Media Watch podcast feed, you can find us wherever you get podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify. If you found us through John's website, sportsmediawatch.com, a social media link, thank you for doing so. Make sure you're following and subscribing. You get great content, not just from us, but from our colleagues, including George Offman, his Tell Me a Story I Don't Know podcast. He's currently in the best of uh, mode for his season six. Uh, the second part of that best of has the likes of Mike North, Tom Brenneman, Hub Arkish, among others, Will Purdue, among others that are on that podcast, their stories, usually a Chicago connection or slant to that podcast, but he goes national media uh, as well that have some kind of tie to Chicago. So George does a great job, peruse that. He's back with a brand new season of brand new shows, season seven in January. So we encourage you to find uh, George's podcast on this feed and as well, uh, Mike Gill, Phil DeMont Mullen do a great job with the announcer schedules podcast on keep you keeping you up to date on who calls the game, what game TV, radio, mostly nationally, those voices you hear again, the announcer schedules uh, Twitter feed is fantastic as a resource to figure out because I do this all the time, John, I look at it with who is that voice or who is the analyst and you go right to Phil's Twitter feed and you can find who is calling that game. Well, they elaborate on that. Mike and Phil do a great job on who's calling the game. They have great guests. They give you insight. They play some of the great calls. You hear those right on this very podcast feed if you follow and subscribe. So that's all good stuff. Um, all right, why don't we do this? Let's get some of the morbid stuff, some of the, the stuff that we have to go over out of the way, then have a little more fun here on the podcast. Um, and let's begin with the latest on the Grant Wall situation that we covered this weekend, passing away suddenly and under... Under, uh, I think what best can be described as dubious circumstances right now, still, it's still unclear what exactly happened in Qatar at the World Cup. Grant Wall, just 48 years of age, the most prominent soccer journalist in the United States over the last 20 years, uh, at least moving up, moving up to this World Cup, was there, was in a stadium covering the World Cup on Friday when he was stricken with cardiac arrest, later passed away. All right, so John, we talked on the previous podcast without a lot of uh, more information. It was very fluid. It's now been a few days. Yeah. Uh, give us the very latest, including the coverage on this from Fox on Saturday, ESPN Saturday this weekend. Yeah. Give us a little more here, John, on the follow-up. 
Well, uh, I can say that uh, Grant Wald's brother, who was the first to report this, uh, the first person to make it public that Grant Wald had passed away, is now saying he does not believe that it was foul play. You can understand why he felt the way he did. And, you know, realistically, we should always be willing to cut a family member slack for not necessarily being in their right mental space when something like that happens. So I'm not going to be critical. Uh, I will say, certainly, you know, you look back and it was so shocking when that news broke, you know, you say to yourself, well, should, should it, uh, I only am looking at myself here, you know, how much should I have indulged the idea that Grant Wall was, you know, let's be real, murdered, right? How much should I have indulged that idea? How much of that was maybe getting a little bit carried away by the shocking nature of the news? And, you know, looking back, that's probably not something that I would, with a few days distance, have thought. You know, but in the moment, you know, it's a shocking thing. That's well said. And again, when we did what we did on Friday, and it's on the previous feed, if you care to go back and listen to it, we were going off the information we had. And again, uh, I, I think this is fair to say, when you have the brother of right. somebody that's prominent saying, I believe this is what happened, you have to address that and talk about that part of it, particularly, as you said, when Grant Wall had been detained by the Qatari government for yeah. wearing a rainbow around a soccer ball on a T-shirt, being questioned about that, it calls all of this into question. And I thought, uh, this is us patting ourselves on the back, we did a very even-handed job of presenting all sides, including that. So right. you're right with what you said there, that in, with two or three extra days to sift through all of it, of course we're all going to be wiser to everything going on. Right. We were doing what we were doing last Friday night, hours after this had happened, John, so pick it up on that. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, ultimately, it. I mean, certainly I didn't even know that Grant Wall had been sick. You know, I, I really didn't follow his career that closely. So I wasn't even aware that he had been for days talking about how ill he'd been. And realistically, when it comes down to it, if you, you know, when we're talking about uh, someone in their 40s, in, in late 40s, early 50s, you know, it's scary to think about, but these things unfortunately do happen. And it just happened with Mike Leach, right? And he was a 61. So, you know, I, I understand why people felt the way that they did. Um, but certainly, you know, uh, it, it certainly doesn't appear as if that was the case. And, uh, you know, you also wonder, hey, if this wasn't Qatar, right? Now, Qatar has earned a reputation. But, you know, you also wonder, well, how much of this is the bias that sometimes people have against, you know, certain countries, you know, and, and, and maybe would we have, I mean, I know I would have thought Russia could have poisoned him. I know I would mm -hmm. have thought that. But, you know, I mean, was there a little bit of xenophobia at play here? Not with Grant Wall's brother. I but... think, can I just interject? You're being too tough yeah. on yourself. I mean, you're okay. saying it in general, but I think you're directing some of it at yourself. Mm -hmm. I mean, dare we go down the road that the Saudi Arabian government with Khashoggi, if I say the name True. right, yeah. captured a journalist and executed him for what he yeah. was investigating and what he was doing. And that's a Middle Eastern country. Yeah. And here we have Grant Wall as uh, as he was writing on his Substack and covering one of the last things that he did in the media was portray uh, the plight of a migrant, a Filipino migrant who had been killed working on uh, one of the stadiums or around one of the, uh, the situations at the World Cup. He constantly was railing against Qatar yeah. for what they had done. So yeah. when you start putting pieces to the puzzle together on this, um, you said it best. I thought, again, complimenting you, 
there's an awful lot of coincidence here right that he's in yeah. the country while the event's going on he's been detained there there is reason for suspicion uh, that's the way that I'll put it now there's reason for suspicion and may and you even said you qualified it maybe this is going to turn out right when we all find out that it's not there you go. Yeah. This is this is the part about talking live about something as opposed to you and I waiting until now, this time frame right. when we usually release late Tuesday night, Wednesday, about having all the info. But I thought that was very necessary uh for us to at least say something and do something in and around that because of his uh because of his prominence. So and you mentioned the Mike Leach stuff. And again, this this hits home. I covered the Alabama Mississippi State game on national radio earlier this year uh with Tiki Barber. In the SEC, Mike Leach's Mississippi State game, he was a team. He was obviously prominent previously at Texas Tech and at Washington State, a very beloved coach in terms of the media, in terms of being a great quote or a great soundbite with all the answers and all the different things. So this is this is awful. Again, the most horrible yeah. thing is for his family, for his immediate yeah. family and friends. And then the Mississippi State football program, the college football community, as you brought it out, uh, but, but your thoughts here is the outpouring has gone yeah. on for two or three days here from the media, his coaching colleagues, et cetera. Uh, any, anything else you'd like to say, John, go ahead. Well, you know, life is short and it gets shorter every day, right? Uh, that's the reality of the matter. Uh, as far as Mike Leach goes, you know, uh, you can tell what kind of a person someone generally was by the outpouring they receive after they pass. And uh, Mike Leach has been the recipient of a lot of glowing tributes even before his official passing. Uh, you know, he kind of he had this gruff exterior uh, that I, I know turned some people off. We all know the controversies that happened with him and Craig James. Very few people actually of a certain age will remember that. That was so long ago. But, right. uh, you know, uh, you know, he's, he's and, not, and by the way, Mike Leach yeah. was completely vindicated in all of that with Craig Leach's. Uh, I mean, uh, uh, Craig James's lawsuit. Uh, he was completely vindicated from everything that had been alleged. So we should we should keep the record straight on that, too. Right. Um, uh, and it's interesting because I, I I looked at some different media members talking about how um, he would weave in and out of things so easily. I think it's John Canazaro who does a great job uh, covering the Pac-12 for the Portland Oregonian, his own Substack. He's got a radio show. He's he's very intertwined in everything Pac-12, everything intertwined with Oregon and Oregon State. And he talked uh, to Mike Leach at length on multiple times and said the conversations would vary from dinosaurs, literally, to the law, to the Pac-12 North, and would weave back to things like ice cream and recruiting. And he said it was it was diverse uh, and that he always was giving of his time. And it was just uh, it was just different. It was it was interesting how uh, how he would go about it. And he will be missed. And, John, I'll add one more thing. I don't know that I actually even briefed you on this. I am slated to be part of the play by play broadcast of the ReliaQuest Bowl, the former Outback Bowl, which is coming on Monday, January 2nd. Uh, the traditional New Year's Day bowl games are on the second because the NFL, oh, by the way, is playing on New Year's Day with it being a Sunday so that ReliaQuest Bowl, the former Outback Bowl, has Illinois and Mississippi State coming to right. Tampa to play the game. At the time we're releasing the podcast, I don't have any inside knowledge, but you wonder where is uh, Mississippi State figuratively, mentally, emotionally to play this game? But they're going to have- play. I believe they will. Yeah, I mean, there's financial. Oh, yeah, but it's been announced. Sure, there's financial reasons, et cetera. And you would want the players. Let's pick up right. on that. You would want the players to have some form of closure 
And it is three weeks from now. If the game hypothetically was this week, we saw that with the Virginia murders, and that was three players that were murdered. They weren't able to play a game later that week. They didn't end up playing their rival Virginia Tech the following week. But this is three weeks from now. So they've announced they're going to play the game. But for the players, follow up on this, it's closure for them. And for a lot of the the seniors, the upperclassmen, this may be the last time you're out on the football field in a bowl game, too, for for the closure to the whole situation, John. Yeah. And, you know, like I said, uh, I believe they are going to play. That's what uh, I think has been said. They're going to play for Mike. It's very different than Virginia because natural causes, even untimely natural causes are very, I would imagine, easier to take than a murder. And, you know, especially when you're talking about three players on the team. So I'm not overwhelmingly surprised. Uh, I know Mike Leach in a million years would not want them to not play uh, because of him. So, you know, uh, they will play that game and uh, I'm sure they'll play for him. You know, I was thinking, uh, you know, just the other day, one of Mike Leach's players left and was kind of uh, derogatory toward Mm -hmm. him. And I'm not going to blame that player because, you know, people do things when they're young. He'll probably regret that and feel bad about it. But, you know, that's why you're 20 and 21. See, that's see, you know, you're a lot. I'll tell you who I'll tell you who it was. It's one of his prominent running backs. Dylan Johnson is his name. I saw the post. One of the things he referenced, and we heard this from from Leach being gruff, like you mentioned, either Texas Tech or Washington State or now Mississippi State. Not everybody can play for him. And he would accuse people of not being tough enough mentally or physically or whatever. And what what Johnson's referring to in his post is that I guess I'm not tough enough to be at Mississippi State Uh, with that. He was not for everybody. I understand. And and you make a good point, too, that you've got young people that often just love to put everything out there immediately on social media on what they think and, and how it works. He could not have had any possible insight that Mike Leach would be seriously ill or dead a week later. This is about football, his playing future, him being unhappy maybe with how he was treated as the season went on. Again, he was a prominent running back for them for a lot of the year. And obviously it had enough and wants to be somewhere else. And by the way, about half of the college football players are in the transfer portal while we're at it. They're unhappy and want to be somewhere else. I'm just saying. And anything else in closing on this and then we'll move on. Anything else? Uh, no, just, you know, what, what, what else can you say? Right. Um, you know, just try to get the most you can out of each day, which, uh, I'm certainly struggling to do. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I mean, that's really all you can do. Right. And we got to be positive. We're not promised tomorrow. We know that that's we got to be positive about that. All right. So we got much to get to here on the podcast, John. I know we've got a special guest that's going to be joining us here in just a few moments, uh, enlighten the audience on who's going to be stopping by and what's behind this as we wind down 2022. Yeah, uh, we're going to be joined by Rachel Bachman of the Wall Street Journal to discuss uh, the upcoming NCAA Volleyball Championships this weekend. And it's not really a a typical podcast uh, topic, uh, NCAA Volleyball, but it seems to be picking up in popularity. Uh, We're not necessarily seeing that reflected in the ratings yet, but you know, uh, it's it's one of those non-revenue sports, a lot of them women's sports that uh, people are starting to pay a little bit more attention to in terms of the fan base that they've got. So uh, we'll uh, bring her in to talk about that. We'll talk a little bit about uh, gymnastics, which is coming up and kind of the future of these sports. And we'll also talk about a, l- a little bit about the Brittany Griner uh, situation as well. All right. So again, we look forward to talking with Rachel in a few minutes before we get there, a little ratings info and news. I am curious at the time that you and I are doing this podcast, we know that Argentina I'm not going to sing Don't Cry For Me, Argentina. I know you're happy about that. They have advanced to the World Cup Finals. So while FIFA won't put an announcement out, a press release out, they're thrilled. 
Uh, the broadcaster Fox is thrilled. Lionel Messi was big with a penalty kick goal and an assist in their semifinal win over Croatia. So they've moved through. We await whether it's France or Morocco. You and I don't know that result. Again, FIFA won't put an announcement out, but they would rather have the defending champ France playing Argentina. Morocco's still a, a, an intriguing story, but it's not the same. All right, that's me saying that. I'm curious backing up to the weekend because it is the world sport. Yeah. The England uh France match. How did it do? Do we have that info in yet from Fox on how did it do on a Saturday afternoon that had college basketball in the United States yeah. that had the Army Navy game that I, I believe England France would have probably been over in the first half of the Army Navy game right around there. How did it do ultimately? Do we have some final numbers or at least some preliminary numbers in from Fox in the World Cup? Well, Fox says it's the most watched men's uh, men's quarterfinal on record uh, for the World Cup, which is a bit surprising to me. But honestly, you know, it's been four years since the last one, eight years since the last one, uh, you know, that was on ESPN. I mean, off the top of my head, I, I can't even remember what those prior quarterfinals did. So that's impressive. Uh, ultimately, you know, 8.8 uh, .8 million viewers, more than Army-Navy comfortably. Uh, and of course, that's almost certainly uh, including pre-match coverage and, and it does include the pre-match. So, you know, uh, even higher on the match window basis. Uh, and, uh, you know, frankly, it's been a little bit hard to get a feel for this World Cup in terms of ratings because it's a complicated, uh, you know, event to cover. You have two different networks. You have match window, pre-match. It's, uh, you know, I mean it's difficult to to figure out sometimes. And you have done a great job of articulating that out-of-home measurement has something yeah, to do with that that's true. now present. You've done that over and over again on these podcasts to help yeah. the number increase. I'm curious, um, the number off of Telemundo, do we have any idea from the Spanish-speaking, primarily um, North American, Mexico, et cetera, that, that would be watching that. Did it get a couple of million? Do we mm -hmm. know yet on how that did because it's England and France and not a, a, a Mexico that's in it or even in a Spanish speaking country that's in it like an Argentina? Any idea how it did to combine the audience? Well, I have no uh, no match window numbers there, but of course I have none from Fox either uh, per Showbuzz, which does have all of the numbers for the full program with the pre-match included. Uh, that would be 3.1 million for England, France. So even with pre-match coverage included, you're talking about well over 11 million viewers to the match mm. overall, maybe even 12 million. Uh, you know, look, I mean, there's a big audience for soccer. There's a big audience for soccer in winter, surprisingly. The World Cup seems to be doing better in the winter than it was in the summer. Of course, out of home has a lot to do with that uh, as well in terms of comparisons to 2018. But I think if you're Fox and Telemundo, you got to feel pretty good. I would love to know, and we don't have the info, on all the combined broadcasters in Europe, it had to be 100 million oh, people watching between England and all the other countries in their language. I mean, I know I know a couple of Brits, several of them that said the country stopped Saturday evening for this, the entire country. And I'm sure it was the same way with France and a lot of Europe, probably, that yeah. long about seven, eight, depending on your time zone, local time yeah. in Europe this was what you were watching. You weren't watching anything else sports related for sure. And, and, in, and in a lot of cases, even non-sports fans were watching this. So it's that big a deal. And again, uh, the France-Morocco match is Wednesday afternoon on Fox. The winners play Sunday afternoon. Yep. Do you have an educated guess, just because we won't be back uh, before that is played, 
with Messi and Argentina definitely there, do we think it will still get the eight or nine million for the final that we saw for the England France? Because it's a Sunday, right? It's Sunday and it's against the NFL. No, it's leading into the NFL. Leading into the NFL. Uh, So what's your thought? Well, you know, Argentina, Spain in 2010, uh, or maybe that was 2014. One of those years, we talk about the USMNT, the USWNT. The fact of the matter is the most watched soccer match in this country is a women's match, the US women versus, uh, I think, Japan in the 2015 final. Correct. Correct. That only barely outdrew the all-time record before that, which was for a men's match not involving the US. It was I think, probably Spain, Netherlands, one of those. Uh, I'll try to look it up. Okay. So, uh, yes, it was Germany, Argentina in 2014. That was 26.7 million viewers uh, combined. Wow. Uh, across uh, ESPN or ABC, I should say, and Univision. And Spain, Netherlands in 2010 was 24.7 million across ABC and Univision. Massive, massive numbers. We don't really think about the men's final as being a big draw because people are really only focused on the U.S. national team, men or women. But uh, the Obviously, no U.S. teams. And and the important thing with those is that the English language audience was not as strong as for the U.S. matches. It was the Spanish language audience that boosted those numbers to those record levels. 2018 on Fox and Telemundo, just 18 million viewers. Really not that great by comparison. Now, that was a morning match. And uh, 2014 and 2010 were afternoon. This will be a morning match, but it'll be on an NFL Sunday morning leading into the NFL. So I think... You know, Argentina is going to be there if it's Argentina, France. Remember, 2018 too was France, Croatia, not necessarily the greatest matchup, Croatia being right. there. Argentina, France, to me, I'm going to say 22 million. Why not? Wow. Uh, With the combined. Okay. Yeah. And again, the Spanish speaking will be very much engaged because one of the greatest players in the world the last yeah. 50 years is from Argentina. He's playing at the highest level and he's in the World Cup final. You know what so I'm going to do? Think- I'm, I'm going to take it to the next level. I'm going to say 30 million. Do you think 30 combined can be there even in the fragmented world that we're in now? Well, I'm, you know, I'm just going, I'm just going bold. Do I actually really think it'll be 30 million? I don't really think so, but you know what, if I'm right, then I'll look pretty good. Swing for the fences. I like that on the world cup final. What's the worst that can happen, right? France would make a big deal too. If it's them, we'll see if it's Morocco again. You and I don't know that Uh, again, Rachel Bachman coming up in a couple of moments. We look forward to talking with her. Just follow up on, you mentioned army Navy, the Heisman trophy going to uh, Caleb Williams of USC, the quarterback, the latest in a long lineage of USC players to win the Heisman Trophy. This, this, unlike previous years, had real drama on there's not a foregone conclusion on who's winning it, yet right. the rating, the rating's not a great rating, and the numbers have continued to decline. Give us the, the quick deets on that. Well, the Heisman Trophy presentation is uh, its really fallen out of relevance. People don't really care about it very much anymore. 1.65 million viewers for this year's, and uh, that's the lowest yet uh, outside of two years ago. Nothing from two years ago really counts, let's be real. Uh, so it's the lowest ever if we're being uh, talking about just the December uh, editions, the normal editions. And this is an event that had 4.9 million viewers a decade ago. Uh, it had 6 million viewers in 2009. And, um, you know, it's just declining in relevance, uh, and uh, it's not. It's one of those. It's 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 on that. Uh, I mean, it's on a worse trajectory, really, than any big event there is. Uh, and it's and- it's arguably. I didn't say this on last week's show. It's the most famous award we have yeah. in terms of notoriety in North American sports. 
Let me just give, I'm not doing this to you only, John. Let me just give the audience a quick quiz or two. Who won the Cy Young Award two years ago in the American League or the National League? Can you tell me without looking? Who who won the NFL Most Valuable Player last year? Can you tell me without looking? When I start saying Heisman Trophy last year, most everybody would probably know who the Heisman Trophy winner was the year before or five years before. If you start going down the list of the last 10 or 15 years of Jameis Winston, Johnny Manziel, Devontae, you know those names, Devontae yeah. Smith, Marcus Mariota. It's so, it's so noteworthy, but it's just interesting that maybe the novelty of it is worn off. The fragmenting yeah. of the audience, like you keep talking about, has knocked it down and knocked it down. Uh, so that's just interesting. But this year, there's no excuse about it being a foregone conclusion to cause people to tune out. I mean, there was drama um, all the way until the name was read as to who was going to get the award. So the problem is nobody cares. I mean, apparently less, yeah. less and less do. Yeah. By, mean, by the way, I did send you and I want your reaction here off the cuff. I sent you the 1990 presentation that, that I did not remember was on CBS with James Brown hosting with Andrea yeah. Joyce. And Ty Detmer winning via satellite from Hawaii. So what was your reaction if you saw that clip there on that? Uh, my reaction was that James Brown hasn't aged very much in <laughs> 30 years. You know, uh, you know, I mean, it was interesting, certainly very sedate, very formal in the way that uh, sports TV used to be. You know, uh, sports TV used to be very elegant. Uh, all that elegance is, is gone now. Mm -hmm. uh, replaced by memes and social media stuff but uh back in the day you know you used to have to really uh you know, i mean you have to you had to be like bob costas right i mean the, the i mean that's not really true because musburger is out there wearing fur coats uh, but, <laughs> that's true uh, you know there was there was a certain formality to it back then that uh, has been uh, ground into dust by ESPN over the past uh, 30 And this was years. a daytime award on network TV from CBS. And Ty Detmer, again, was sitting there via satellite at like 10 o'clock in the morning Hawaii time as the first person to find out of his group that he had gotten the award because of the satellite hookup and the IFB earpiece wow. in his ear. He knew he yeah. had won. It's always mm -hmm. a a tremendous uh, moment to to look back on i still remember gino toretta won the award a couple of years later for the university of miami gino tells his story john all the time that nbc had gotten the rights to the heisman trophy at that point um right around the time they got the notre dame football package as well so gino is there in new york with marshall falk and i want to say there were a couple of other prominent players but off the top of my head i can't remember who else was sitting there with him? Miami was undefeated playing for the national title against Alabama in the Sugar Bowl, ultimately. But this was the Heisman Award before that. Um, and as he relayed the story, NBC was showing the Heisman presentation after an NFL Saturday football game, which was, I want to say, the Buffalo Bills and the Miami Dolphins, as he tells the story. And the game dragged on and the game might have even gone to overtime and they had to sit in the downtown athletic club and wait and wait until the game was finally over for Bob Costas to get off the air with the post game, say goodbye, uh, whomever was calling it Dick Enberg and, uh, and probably Bob Trumpy at that time, or Dick Enberg and Paul McGuire and Phil Sims, whoever was calling it at that time in the early nineties uh, to say goodbye. And then they did the Heisman trophy presentation on NBC that afternoon, but they sat there just having to wait, wait, wait. In the green room, they sat there and everybody out in the downtown athletic club chairs and out in the out in the hall where they were doing it had to wait for the football game to end yeah. before they could start the Heisman well, back in those days. 
You know, uh, if uh, if they had the late presidential election results to get an NFL game in, they do the same. Uh, yeah, we, we seem to delay them for weeks now, which I can't fathom in 2022 why it takes this long. But that's a whole nother subject for a whole nother podcast, I think. Uh, one more NFL coverage from this weekend. You wrote about this on the site on SportsMediaWatch.com that Sunday earlier in the day did a lot better than Sunday night. Of course, my Buccaneers in the late window being blitzed by the San Francisco 49ers as the Fox main game here. We had for what the second time in a month, the main game was dumped by its network. Fox dumped out of it for the Carolina Seattle game. That was much closer because the 49ers were beating my Buccaneers 35, nothing. There was no drama in the second half, but Johnny, just real quick on the audience there for the NFL. Well, even with a blowout, it was 24 million viewers. Uh, so that's the largest week 14 audience in three years. Out of home doesn't really apply because three years. So that's just out of home, right? Uh, and uh, so, uh, you know, good numbers. I mean, you can't complain with the games that bad to still get a 12.3 rating. In the out of home era, viewership is so inflated. Ratings give you at least a little bit of a better idea. And I think for a 35 to nothing featured game that results in people having to watch the Carolina Panthers, a 12.3 rating is pretty good. And they did pull the upset there with the Seahawks. And the Sunday night game with the Chargers and the Dolphins, they flexed to that on NBC to get a better game. And it it ultimately just did kind of okay on Sunday yeah, night, right? Well, you know, the Chargers have never really mattered to anybody outside of San Diego. Uh, and, of course, they left San Diego. And, uh, you know, I don't know. Maybe we're getting a little ahead of ourselves with Tua and the Dolphins as a TV draw. Uh, least watched week 14 edition of Sunday night football since uh, Jason Campbell versus Joe Flacco, 2008 Washington <laughs> and Baltimore. So. Now that's pulling out some names yeah. uh, in the way back. All right. Uh, good enough on that. And then Monday night had the Patriots beating the Arizona Cardinals, which again was not a great matchup there either. Yeah. I forgot to mention John Madden would have been calling that game in 2008 because he was still NBC's lead analyst. Uh, as far as the Monday night game, not a very good number, about maybe 10, 11 million combined. And that's down significantly from last year, which was an ABC simulcast around 16 million for the Rams and the Cardinals. We'll see if all of that will ramp up. All right. That leads us to a special guest coming up now. All right. Well, we're happy to be joined today by Wall Street Journal senior sports reporter Rachel Bachman, who covers uh, the Olympics, college sports and the business and finance of women's sports. And uh, Rachel, it's good to have you here this week. Uh, thank you for being flexible with your schedule. Uh, obviously, with all the illness going around, you know, things are having to be shaken up all the time. But uh, thank you for joining us today. And it's uh, good to have you here because we have the uh, the college volleyball national uh, semifinals and national championship coming up this week. So you recently wrote an article about the uh, rise in volleyball. It's a golden age of volleyball uh, per the headline. And I was curious, you know, obviously, I don't think there's been too many volleyball games on Nielsen rated TV this year. So the usual metrics I would look at are not necessarily in- indicative. So I wanted to know, because I, I get the sense that there's some growth and, and some interest. Uh, what are, are you seeing in volleyball that is compelling and pointing to an, a, a, a golden age? Well, first of all, thanks for having me. What I've seen really is growth from the lowest levels to the highest levels. And that always always gets my attention because I'm just interested inherently in in bigger trends in sports. So things like high school volleyball participation among girls jumping 8% in 10 years, which is really notable because a few of those years were the pandemic when a lot of sports contracted in participation. 
they're um, growing at the club level, you know, volleyball clubs are exploding. And then as I noted in the story, there are a couple of years ago, there were no women's professional volleyball leagues, at least indoor volleyball. And in a couple of years, we could have as many as four of them. So that gives you an idea of what I call sort of the prospect or gold rush in trying to cash in on the popularity and, and growth of volleyball. And it's interesting you bring up the growth at the uh, school level because a lot of sports are seeing decline. Uh, gymnastics is a sport that is kind of popularly discussed as one that's kind of on the cusp, but I believe the participation rates in that have really fallen off dramatically since the USA Gymnastics scandal. So, and of course, football, we all know concussions and, and everything that's gone on there. So are there any other sports in the same class as volleyball, or is this just kind of the exception while everybody else is seeing decline? Really among the the large number of participation sports, so things like track and field and basketball, softball, soccer, those are the big sports for girls. No sport has grown like volleyball has in the last 10 years. And so it really is an outlier in that way. And I do think coincidentally sort of, or, or concurrently, it's the club game that's really driving it. And it's harder to track those metrics because there's not one organization that tracks all of them, but every person I talked to said, the club space is exploding. Um, one thing I think volleyball is benefiting for is, as I've written also recently, the decline in popularity of girls' high school basketball, which is a sort of a complex trend in and of itself. But obviously, in both cases, you have tall girls who are interested in doing this, who tend to excel in both sports. And so I don't think it's a coincidence that volleyball has risen at the same time that basketball has fallen off in recent years. I, I know you'd written an article about this and it kind of got a little bit of pushback on it as well, but why would you say basketball has kind of seen a bit of an erosion? Well, it's, it's, it's very difficult to generalize because as you know, this is a complicated country. One reason for instance, is the closure of rural schools. So there were many more schools that had basketball teams, for instance, than teams in some other girls sports, for instance, volleyball, uh, soccer even. And so um, in some cases, you know, schools would close and that team would just sort of vanish. And, they would, you know, those students would go to another school where it would be consolidated. Some younger kids don't like to run as much as, as basketball requires. Some girls don't like the contact of basketball, which, again, is sort of interesting because we see basketball somewhat declining as girls wrestling has been on the rise. So this is what makes it so difficult to generalize. I think in basketball's case, there's a whole bunch of um, factors that contribute. Um, but there's also a factor of, I think, you know, it used to be on top. It used to be number one. And anything that's, you know, the has the very highest rate could always um, fall off because it's the it, it's sort of the the prime candidate to see erosion from from competition. Rachel, John knows this. I am the father of twins, 14 year old twins that are freshmen in high school. And it's interesting. They played recreational basketball. Uh, they do not play club like you're talking about, do not play volleyball but along the same lines, they're tall. I'm I'm tall. You can't tell this because I'm sitting down, but I'm six foot three and a half, almost six foot four. So they're going to end up being tall. And so automatically everybody thinks, do you play basketball? Will you play volleyball? And for a lot of their uh, friends, it's interesting. They have numerous friends that maybe were playing the recreational basketball, but exactly like you're talking about, they've kind of gravitated to volleyball. Again, this is in no way indicative of the whole country. I'm just giving you a small sample in the Tampa St. Pete Clearwater area, not exactly maybe a, a volleyball hotbed to begin with, 
but there is obviously some interest at the club level in volleyball. Their friends, I hear about this, the tournaments that are going on, and you do have to choose because in most cases, the sports are running simultaneously and you can't really be committed to both of them. So I think it's a it's a very valid point. I thought I would just add that to the mix in our own household that we we've seen example of that. And an increased sports specialization has affected all high school sports in particular, because even if the seasons don't run concurrently, there is pressure from club coaches in particular, sometimes even high school coaches, to concentrate on one sport. So that's where you see kids who might have been three sport athletes 15 years ago dropping out of one or two and concentrating on one. Can I do a parental PSA on the sportsmediawatch.com podcast? Dr. John Lewis, am I allowed to do that? Of course. If those coaches only want your son or daughter to play one sport with all of this, ask them, first of all, when you grew up, did you only play one sport when you were in junior high and high school? And see if they swallow the apple core, as I like to say. And the second thing is, if you're telling me that my son or daughter is going to get a scholarship, are you guaranteeing me a scholarship just from your sport that they shouldn't try anything else? Are you giving me that guarantee, coach? See again what the reaction is. This is the TJ public service announcement on how to help in the back and forth with only play my sport. I'm just throwing that out there, Rachel, trying to make everybody smile and uh, and give them a heads up. There we go. And, and probably most persuasive from college coaches I've spoken to, including Stanford's Tara Vanderveer, a very decorated coach. They prefer athletes who are multi-sport. So they think it makes them less inclined to burn out, less inclined to get injured. So that's the ultimate um, mm -hmm. rebuttal to parents who want their kids to specialize. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. There we go on that, John. I didn't mean to sidetrack it. I just had oh, no, to throw that right. out there. Go ahead. Well, I was curious, you know, uh, we talk about volleyball and basketball. Do you think volleyball at the college level, let's just look at NCAA, has a brighter future than basketball or, you know, in the long run? Because right now, basketball is still pretty well ahead. You're getting four or five million for the national championship, getting a nice healthy one million for the volleyball title, too. But it's still a big gap. That's a great question. It's hard to say because we forget uh, all of these sports, especially women's sports, are really in their infancy in terms of monetizing them. And I could go on for uh, about that for a long time. But um, you're right. Basketball is still quite a bit ahead. Um, and that's for a number of reasons. I think people people love the NCAA tournament format. It's very understandable. It's um, It runs just about concurrently with the men's tournament. So it's really easy to follow. Of course, I think the ultimate advantage of college sports are these brands that are already well known. If you say Nebraska, nobody has to explain what that means. You know, whereas 
fledgling professional leagues. They're all new. They don't necessarily have a connection to existing leagues. And so that's that's a huge um, mountain to climb. But that's also an advantage for volleyball. You know, I think I do think some of the success that volleyball is seeing is because of initiatives like I wrote about from the Big Ten Network, where they realized about seven years ago that volleyball was already pretty popular looking at the ratings nationwide, but they thought they could could make it even more popular by strategically promoting it. And the way they did that was to actually schedule high profile volleyball matches to follow Big Ten football games and then promote those volleyball matches during the football games. And this was hugely successful on the Big Ten Network, and they've gotten some record ratings um, just this year with that strategy. And I think they'll continue to do it. So um, in that way, I mean, if they keep doing that, if other, you know, like the SEC network and other outlets um, go that route, I think it really help boost volleyball. Since as we know, football has this enormous following and platform already, and it already has the built-in brand loyalty for the, the universities. Um, but I, I think it's it's yet to be seen sort of how much volleyball can grow because it is really as something that people watch regularly outside the Olympics, it really is still kind of at its infancy. Just out of curiosity, is there men's volleyball? Because I don't believe there is. There in is college. In college, college there is, yes. Yeah, yeah. There's um, but I think I forget, I put it in the story. It's either five or six times as many division one women's teams as men's teams. So they do exist, but at a much smaller level. Right. Um, so when I when I wrote about volleyball, that's one reason I focused on women and girls, because that that's where the overwhelming number of teams are. And Rachel, isn't it the case? Most of it is in the West. A lot of it is in the West. I'm not saying it's all in the West, but in terms of male volleyball, a lot of it is the Western schools more so than let's say the Southeast where I am. It's not as much. You know, I haven't, I didn't look at that, but um, that's probably true. I know historically the sort of the power center of men's volleyball is, is California. So um, there is actually a, a nominally professional men's volleyball team, which I mentioned in the story as well. They don't actually pay salaries, so you could debate whether that's professional, but that launched in 2019. Um, interestingly, they also want to launch a women's league. They're one of the four that want to launch. So um, even the nominally men's league wants to, to launch a women's league too. Yeah. The reason I ask is, you know, I put together my volleyball schedule on the side. I couldn't find any men's games anywhere. Uh, yeah. And gymnastics, very similar. There's tons of women's gymnastics. When they say Friday night, what is it? Friday night flights? What is it that ESPN does? I think Friday so. Friday night heights. Friday night heights, right. When they do that, they're not airing. I don't think they've ever aired a men's meet on ESPN. So what do you think accounts for the fact that given the huge disparity we have in men's and women's sports generally, where men's are overrepresented, even beyond the, the ratings gap, like it's like 99 to one. But when it comes to volleyball and gymnastics, it is the exact opposite. You can't find men's volleyball or men's gymnastics on TV. What do you think accounts for that? I My guess is that it is an evolution of how college athletic departments have chosen to implement Title IX. So you look at athletic departments and where does most of the money go? It goes to football, men's basketball. And that's also because those are the sports that tend to generate the most revenue. Um, so if you look at men's sports and sort of filling out the program, it doesn't really behoove athletic departments to have a lot of men's teams when they have to essentially play catch up on the women's side. So they're not completely lopsided. And the thing that sort of tips the balance um, at most places is football, because football rosters are 100 plus and there's no women's equivalent. And so there tend to be sometimes more women's teams than men's. 
Um, and so it's a little bit, it's a bit convoluted to explain, but generally speaking, you know, as you know, running athletic departments is expensive and running teams is expensive. And so uh, college athletic departments tend to pick the programs that can generate the most interest and revenue. And in terms of gymnastics, that tends to be on the women's side. Historically, that's what people want to want to watch. Historically, I think that's partly because of the Olympics. The women's Olympic gymnastics is extremely popular. And so I think that carries up and down the sport. Um, and same with volleyball. I mean, I think it's in other countries, men's volleyball is quite popular, probably more so than this country. But for whatever reason, college athletic departments have not jumped on the bandwagon to create teams. Um, and I think it's largely because they've chosen to sink their resources into, uh, you know, just a handful of the men's teams that generate the most revenue. Interesting stuff. Uh, we could talk more about volleyball, of course, but I do want to get your thoughts on some other issues. Uh, in particular, uh, Brittany Griner just returning to the U.S., uh, after 10 months in Russia, uh, being incarcerated, you know, we see all the controversy. It, it gets ugly, right? People who are seemingly upset that Brittany Griner has been released, people who are saying, well, how could you let her out, but not Paul Whelan? Then you have the people who are now trying to diminish Paul Whelan and say that, oh, well, he was discharged from the military. It, it, it all gets to, you know, people kind of feeding on each other here. And uh, I do wonder, though, for Brittany, right? We have no idea what's going to come of her career. It seems almost impossible to go 10 months in a prison and then just go back to playing. But she did just the other day uh, do a workout. What do you think if she returns to basketball, her impact will be on the WNBA, the popularity, the attention? Is this just one of those deals that, you know, it's just going to be that controversy and that's it? Or will people really start following her career more closely? Well, I think, first of all, we're not certain she will come back because as you um, hinted at, we don't really know what happened with her when she was in Russia. We don't know about her physical well-being, her emotional well-being and sort of where she's at. Um, at the same time, you know, there are some like a colleague of mine, um, Robert O'Connell, wrote a story to publish today about just sort of the the pros and cons of, you know, what she does next. And there are sports psychologists who say there's a real advantage to joining a team, rejoining a team um, that, you know, it is a feeling of togetherness and um, support that really might help her in her recovery. In terms of her reception, I think the league definitely and its fans absolutely wrapped their arms around her. And so I think she would she would like absolutely generate attention. Um, if she returns to the court, she does return to competitive play and, you know, tours the country playing at, at visiting, you know, away arenas, um, I think she'll absolutely attract attention. Whether that will translate into things like, you know, higher TV ratings, it's, it's hard to say, but um, it might have something to do with her play, you know, <laughs> above all else, America loves a winner. Um, but uh, it's, it's, it's a little bit hard to say now because there's so many unknowns about this whole situation. Yeah. Do you think that this is the most compelling story the WNBA has ever had if she comes back? I mean, is this something that would ultimately, we're talking about a league that's been around for nearly 30 years. I, I can't think of anything that would be more dramatic than Brittany Griner coming back to play. This story definitely has transcended the league in a way that perhaps no other story has. There were some early stories in the league with former Olympians, for instance, or ongoing Olympians competing and very famous, very accomplished women and so on. But her story really transcended basketball. And I think in that way, you're absolutely right. It would provide sort of a 
I mean, a comeback story in a way that the league has never seen. And I think that could be tremendously valuable provided of course she wants to do it. She wants to come back and it's, it's something that she does willingly. Okay. We always have fun with these. I usually put them to John, but Rachel, since you're our guest, I'll put them to you. Let's just have fun. Who gets the first big interview with her? I have I have my thought on who it might be that sits down and gets to hear all about this. Rachel, you're our guest. Ladies first. Who who do you think if she does want to do it? And I think she will at some point. Who who gets that? Who gets the get? What do you think? I, I would guess if I just had to guess either Robin Roberts or Oprah. There you go. I was along those lines. John Lewis, did you have a guess? I was going to say Robin Roberts. Uh, I think Robin Roberts at this point, ha- you know, I'm not saying she's bigger than Oprah, but Oprah's on own and she can get prime time on CBS if mm-hmm. she wants. But Robin Roberts is on TMA every single day. I think it'll be Robin Roberts. I thought the name Holly Rowe, too, might be in the comfort zone because she covered her in her college career, obviously, and now in the WNBA. But Robin Roberts is a former player, former Division One player in college basketball and Good Morning America. And, and again, the tie-in with the WNBA, ESPN, and ABC. We'll, we'll put a note out there that maybe it should be Rachel Bachman. Maybe Rachel should get to sit down with Brittany Griner. We're on your bandwagon right now for coming on the podcast. I just thought I would throw that out there while we're kissing up to the guests. John, what else? Yeah, why not? That would be yeah, certainly interesting. I, I do think that uh, it will be a big deal, probably too big for ESPN to get that interview. That ABC will, will would get that. I, I can't see ESPN getting it. Notice you see Oliver. ABC primetime conversation written all over this with Robin Roberts because of the tie to the WNBA, John, you think? And I see Rachel yeah. nodding too. I do. The only thing, and, and uh, Rachel kind of alluded to this, is if Brittany wants to do it. Brittany Griner is a very quiet person. That's kind of one of the ironies here. Her Twitter account hasn't been updated since, what, 2017? I'm honestly surprised they found any quotes from her about Black Lives Matter because she is not at all outspoken. And I don't mean that as a criticism. It's just her personality. She's a very kind of quiet person personality so it's entirely possible she chooses not to do an interview not to write a book she might never discuss this publicly for all we know fair enough fair enough on that all right so uh we obviously are in the middle of the world cup uh this has been an event that's been very much overshadowed by the death of grant wall uh now grant wall's brother said today he no longer believes that foul play was involved but you know Obviously, you cover the Olympics. Uh, the IOC and FIFA are two organizations that are certainly of questionable morality and ethics, right? And we have seen over time, these events have been played in countries that are also kind of of questionable morality and ethics. Uh, what do you think the future holds for the IOC and FIFA in terms of where these events are being held because it feels like this has finally reached critical mass with Russia and Qatar hosting in back-to-back years in the World Cup and the, on the men's side and China getting the Olympics this time around, the sports washing debate. It's a great question. I don't think we know yet. The, the news that's coming out of the IOC in recent days, as you've probably seen, has been pretty alarming to some in Europe, and that is that most in the many in the Olympic movement are ready to welcome back Russian athletes, even if the war in Ukraine continues. And to me, that's sort of a signal that these very, very large sports bodies, in some part, are motivated through inclusivity. And in some ways, some people think, you know, that can take on sort of a negative tone in terms of including people who others think shouldn't be included. So 
the IOC, for instance, has so far said no to Qatar for hosting the Olympics. My question is, will that change now that Qatar has all of these venues? Because one of the IOC's objection is, you know, objections is, you know, building sort of superfluous facilities. Well, now Qatar has them. It has many facilities. It could hold events. Um, so, you know, I, I think that that is something definitely to be watched. There are a number of countries, including Saudi Arabia, that want to host events that others might question. The um, the other question that I, I think people are going to have to face is climate change, because, of course, this World Cup was relocated, pushed back to December from its usual slot because of warm temperatures, typically warm temperatures in that region. And so if other countries in that region want to host these events in the future, that is going to be another huge issue. Will other broadcasters, um, will other countries' broadcasters agree to that? And in the case of the Olympics, I think it's a much bigger issue because you have um, the U.S. where they're paying the most for rights globally. I don't think that's true for FIFA. I think FIFA, the, the rights fees are much more spread out around the world in the U.S. or in, in, in as far as the Olympics the U.S. pays the single largest rights fee for to broadcast the games. And so, of course, it's going to have influence about when the games are broadcast. And mm -hmm. I, I think the U.S. would strongly argue against Olympics, for instance, that competed with the NFL. I think that's the last thing on earth they would want. So so there are issues beyond the ethical issues and the, you know, the the host country um, sort of politics issues that I think will have to be looked at in, in terms of these, some, some of these issues overlap, in other words. Yeah. Do you think we'll ever get to the point where there's just a rotation? We see this with uh, the Final Four, Super Bowl, you know, a set number of, you know, Western countries, you know, the United States, the UK, France, Spain, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, we're talking every four years. So that's like a 20-year a, a cycle that you could have for one of these events. Do you think we'll ever get to that point? I think we will. And I think we'll actually will get it with the Winter Olympics first. Because, as I said, the climate change issue is really becoming, coming to the forefront with snow sports. So, you know, the Olympics are getting more unpredictable in terms of where they can be held, the Winter Games in particular. So, um, and I also think there will be pushback from other countries if there is, if the rotation includes only, for instance, you know, North America and Europe or North and South America and Europe, because they will contend. And I think they'll have a point that, you know, those are not inclusive events. Those are not true global events if they don't include events in Africa and maybe in the Mideast and in Asia. So the, you know, both those entities, FIFA and the IOC are going to have to balance all of these competing interests. And sometimes that means, you know, having games in a place like Beijing where it's cold enough, but, you know, there are very few of these events typically there. Um, it's a very unnatural snow sports environment in many other ways, but it's cold enough. So, you know, they, they still are sort of a place that can hold these events in that respect. Two interesting things. One, you alluded to this. The United States pays staggeringly more than any other country to televise the Olympics in particular. And that's one of the main reasons why the Olympics have continued to this point, because there was a lot of talk, even in recent years, that it was going to die out. But NBC re-upped and paid billions and billions and billions and pumped it in for at least two more Olympics to be coming in Paris in the United States. So that's uh, that's obviously part of it. The next thing um, that I think is interesting is look what happened in Athens, Greece. Look what happened in Brazil, where when you don't talk about the rotation and the countries that are that are more integrated with all of this, 
um, you have stadiums that are now decrepit, economies that are crippled because they spent all this money to build stadiums and venues that have no use after the games are over with. So, John, John to your point, that makes the stronger argument for having a rotation, I believe, on more stable, economic, established countries that have hosted Olympics before and have all the venues yeah. as opposed to moving it around. That's just my thought to add to the discussion. Yeah. That's an excellent point because, you know, I'm talking so much about authoritarian countries, you know, Russia, mm -hmm. dangerous countries. Some of it, too, is, you know, sometimes the Olympics can be dangerous to these uh, to these places like uh, like in Brazil. Uh, there's a book by Dave Zirin, Brazil's Dance with the Devil, that covered a lot of this when Brazil had the World Cup and the Olympics back to back. And what happened? They ended up impeaching their president. They had all of this political <laughs> turmoil. And, you know, I don't think anyone was was well off for any of that happening. And the World Cup being in South Africa. Look, I mean, it is good to have these events in African countries. I mean, that is part of the world. But at the same time, there's so much exploitation, as I'm sure you, you uh, Rachel, uh, know just from covering, the exploitation is, is out of control. Yeah, it's, it's a really difficult balance. You know, you look at a country like Morocco, which has long wanted to host the World Cup, would, you know, I don't know whether hosting the World Cup would would improve that country's fortunes or make them more, you know, or or decrease them, in other words, yeah. because, you know, I mean, it might plunge so much into building stadiums at FIFA's behest that it would be detrimental to the economy. On the flip side, I'm sure it would be a huge boon for tourism and, and you know, other businesses and so on. Yeah. It's uh, that's always the key exchange in these deals is the impact Will it be positive or negative? You, you, there'll always be those economic impact studies to see that they're positive. And then you talk to the actual people who are there and they might have a different uh, story to tell. Uh, Rachel, I just want to thank you so much for taking the time and uh, giving us such great insight on all these topics today. We really appreciate it. And uh, you, uh, you will continue, of course, to uh, break news on all of these topics for the Wall Street Journal, uh, as you have done so often. So thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Rachel, a treat. Thank you. Thanks so much, guys. Good luck. Take care. Good stuff from her. And again, reader in the Wall Street Journal, as you were saying, let us move to the conclusion of what we do right here. Love it or leave it. Okay, interesting. Uh, we've already covered something like the Heisman Trophy and, and how the audience was kind of uh, leaving it. It is interesting that MLS, while we're talking about different sports, yeah. is now leaving ESPN once and for all here on the on the rights deals. Um, FIFA has gone with Fox for the World Cup uh, as well. We we know what happened previously with the National Hockey League no longer being associated with ESPN. The all the the uh, the phrase "You're dead to me," like the mafia, "You're dead to me." <laughs> Uh, I wonder if Major League Soccer, love it or leave it, if ESPN now is going to be in the business of largely leave it alone. Don't even talk about it because they don't televise it. Thought, John? Well, why not? You know, I mean, what's what's the harm? This is not, you know, MLS for the longest while has kind of been drafting off this World Cup popularity. And, you know, I don't think MLS, I mean, look, they did okay for the final this past go around. But, you know, I mean, I mean, it's not like it's that much of a better draw than like the NHRA or something. And I mean, mm -hmm. look, it probably gets better demos than the NHRA does, but ESPN completely ignores NASCAR, you know, and NASCAR does a heck of a lot better.
right? They even mm-hmm. kind of ignore F1 on their studio shows. It's not like they've got an F1 reporter. And F1 has been one of their most, you know, their brightest spots. So there's no requirement that ESPN cover MLS, right? You know, and, and you know, MLS fans kind of get upset over stuff like that. They say, well, we're more popular than the WNBA. The WNBA gets coverage. Well, you know, look, the reality of the matter is whether you agree with this thought process or not, the WNBA is the number one women's sport. So there is a certain amount of pressure that you get to give that coverage that you would not feel for MLS, you know, and even if the numbers are are slightly or not slightly, but decently lower, you know, that is a factor there. And uh, MLS does not have that, you know, as, 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 as something that would justify coverage. Even the NWSL doesn't because again, the WNBA is the oldest and most successful of the women's pro sports. So look, when it comes down to it, you know, I don't think ESPN needs to cover MLS that much considering, let's be real, ESPN's primary rationale is to cover the NFL, cover LeBron James and give Stephen A. Smith Smith exposure. That's the motto over there. I would agree, especially with the uh, the talk TV. Uh, speaking of that, let's do another. Love it or leave it. I saw it this week. I cannot believe that it lasted, but it did. The Around the Horn show on yeah. ESPN is celebrating its 20th anniversary with Tony Reale and all the talking heads. And this was all spawned out of the early 2000s with Pardon the Interruption and all the debate TV that led yeah. to first take on ESPN and now has undisputed with uh skip and and shannon that may or may not have six people watching it uh love it or leave it here around the horn i outgrew it a while ago do you still every once in a while do you not at all on around the horn uh at the risk of of uh of offending the great tony reality i don't think i've watched around the horn in several years now um you know i remember when around the horn premiered uh, I was 13 years old, and uh, I remember thinking to myself, is this a joke? Uh, you know, that was my uh, instinctual reaction was, what is this? Because I, I got into PTI from the start. Mm-hmm. Uh, PTI uh, was like Athena, right? It burst forth fully formed. Uh, Around the Horn, on the other hand, was- Listen to you path. getting all mythological on the podcast. Oh. Keep going. Yes. <laughs> Well, around the horn was was uh, a basket case by comparison. It just, it, 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 it first of all, people don't remember this. It was delayed a week or a day. I don't know if it was a day or a week, but it was supposed to premiere one day. They had some kind of technical issue and couldn't premiere it. So it premiered either a week later or a day later. Um, you know, it was, everyone loves around the horn now because they've got, and I don't mean this as an insult. They've got a literal choir boy, okay, hosting the show, Tony Reality, mm-hmm. like all the way down to wearing the uh, Ash Wednesday marks on its forehead, which you never see, right? I mean, and I used to be Catholic once, so I speak from experience. <laughs> right. Uh, and, uh, you know, I mean, like he's the, the moral well, center. He got it. He got his start on the audition as being part of pardon the interruption as right, stat exactly. boy, as being somebody that worked on the show and would help them as a personality. And then they gave him the opportunity and it's now lasted 20 years. Yeah. The first incarnations obviously had Woody page, uh, from the Denver, uh, was it the Denver post, right? I think, or yeah. was he the Rocky mountain news? I can't remember which one originally, but it also had uh, what TJ Simers, my namesake, first namesake yeah. from the LA Times and a couple of others. TJ Simers got himself in trouble for outing the fact that, hey, this stuff is orchestrated and rehearsed, and the producers behind the scenes are wanting fake arguments. 
Uh, he actually, you know, it's like uh, revealing that pro wrestling is not real from the inside. Uh, and so he was no longer welcome on that. I'm just apparently ESPN has loved it enough that it has continued for 20 years. They get they celebrate their 20th anniversary right now. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, when we having reality as the center of the show, I think has helped uh, when Max Kellerman was the host. It wasn't quite as likable. You know, Max is not the same guy he was 20 years ago. Uh, he could be pretty. I'll, I'll tell you something. I remember something happening on around the horn. I've never heard anybody mention it ever. So it's a it's one of those deals where you're like, did that actually happen? Because I remember it vividly, but okay. I have no corroboration. Now I'm peaked. Now I'm peaked. I want to know what this is. There was an around the horn when Max was hosting where Woody Page gave a heartfelt, very important FaceTime at the end. And then Max made some kind of snide comment, like really going after our target demographic, Woody. And then Woody said, screw you, Max, genuinely. And the show just ended. Now, nobody but me remembers this. I've never heard anybody mention it. And I kind of wonder, well, did that really happen? But I know it did. I've got to. So you know, we got to look it up on I'm YouTube. Like, yeah, Everything I'm like Trump. I've YouTube. got a great memory. We got to We got to track back and see if that's actually on YouTube now. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, it's not on YouTube. I guarantee you that. I, I don't know if anybody remembers this because this is back before the era of Twitter, where every single solitary slight screw up on TV became content for people. So there's no like 2004 blog post about, whoa, what happened around the horn today? Like this is right. back when stuff would just happen and you'd see it in your house and nobody else around you had seen it. But I, I know that that, I, I believe that that happened. I mean, I'm not trying to impugn anybody, but I, I, if I recall, Woody Page gave a heartfelt FaceTime. I know what the topic was, but I'm not going to be specific because just in case I'm remembering this wrong. Uh, I remember it all completely as if it happened two minutes ago. And then Max made some kind of sarcastic comment. And then Woody said, screw you, Max. And that was it. That was, that's, <laughs> they just signed off normal, right? And, uh, you know, all of that is to say, Max, certainly the era where it was Max and Jay Mariotti, it was an unlikable show. Mm -hmm. I don't hold any of that against Max. He's a changed man, as anyone would be in their 40s compared to their 20s. But, you know, it wasn't a likable show. It was a deeply unlikable show. It was for, for a solid 10 years, basically until Jay Mariotti was, you know, no longer on it. It was a tremendously unlikable show because Jay Mariotti is gone because Tony Reale is there. It is very different now. It is a much more, you know, socially conscious show. Uh, obviously they've tried to work on the diversity, uh, you know, and um, look, is it a show for me? No, it's not. You know, I watched around the horn because for a little while there, ESPN had a bunch of shows. I liked like the jump highly questionable high noon even Sports Nation, and then they canceled all of them. So my reason for watching ESPN in the afternoons has kind of gone. But uh, so as a result of that, I, I don't watch it. I did do the YouTube search. There's not a clip there. So you no, there is that. Here's and, another ESPN, one. and ESPN would have removed it, I think, is what right. your subtle point was. Can I, but go can ahead I real quick. Another one? Uh, there's another one. This is from that era where there was no clickbait stuff about every single off-color moment on TV. Uh, this is the 2004 NBA Finals. They're doing a 4 p.m. Eastern Sports Center. 
uh, and I'm the only person who watched this. <laughs> and uh, they're outside of Staples Did Center. Nielsen confirmed that. Continue. Yes. Yeah, continue. they probably could. Uh, it's Kevin Frazier and Stephen A. Smith, and it's right before the Athens Olympics, where there's a lot of people concerned about terrorism. It was the first Summer Olympics mm -hmm. since 9/11, the first overseas Olympics since 9/11, and the terrorists were out of control. Madrid had happened that year. It was, right. You know, so um, probably the London uh, bombings that also that was happened a year later. Subway. That, okay, right around yeah, that time, later. right? But you know, it, general point is there were a lot, there was a lot of terrorism. Anyway, so I remember Kevin Frazier made a very ill thought out joke about Stephen A. Smith being held hostage at this Olympics, and then they came back from the break, and Kevin had to apologize. And I'm the only person that remembers that because I was the only person watching today. That happening would have been all over every single blog. Oh, Kevin Fraser apologizes after blah, 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 blah. Every single one. And I got to tell you, I think I prefer the days when things like that would just happen. They'd sure. be weird. You'd kind of wonder if you were even the only person to see them. And it would just disappear like tears in the rain. I'm with you. Well, we've had two examples of that recently, just on Sunday night. I didn't see it because we were flying back from San Francisco. But Chris Collinsworth brought up Tua Tagovailoa, the Miami Dolphin quarterback, having two concussions. And of course, the NFL is so phobic over the word concussion and all that's associated with it. They immediately jumped on whatever red phone or NBC did this on their own and made sure that Chris Collinsworth, after the next commercial break, came back and said, he was not diagnosed with a concussion the first time around. There's debate on what happened, blah, blah, blah. There was an investigation. So the concussion thing. And then the Jalen Rose situation where he foolishly on the uh, on the uh, ESPN pregame, NBA pregame show, uh, started talking about how the uh, women involved with the former Celtics coach Udoka should be named the same way that he was named, uh, having no feel or understanding that when you're dealing with subordinates, when you're dealing with those that are maybe being sexually harassed, that part of it is the the fear of, of being known, the intimidation, uh, the shame of it all. And so he was made, I believe they even came back during the game. He was made to apologize during a segment of the game. I think I have that right, John, where he had yeah. to go on camera and apologize. Yeah, you got to love those apologies that they make people do. Um, look, you know, obviously I'm not supporting what Jalen said. This is actually several weeks ago, maybe even mm -hmm. uh, it's a little while ago. But, you know, I'd rather have someone say something offensive and just stick with it than give those fake apologies that nobody buys. I mean, come on. You know, do we really think he was sorry? Do we really think his opinion has changed? He said it because he believed it. Move on. Wouldn't part of the argument be if you really mean that you don't get the privilege to be on the TV pregame show anymore? If people hey. want to have outrage? Hey, I mean, I, I, Jalen's been there for way too long. I'm not trying to be right, mean, but I mean, he's been, Jalen is an okay analyst, but he, we're talking a, a decade through every iteration of NBA countdown. He's been the constant. And I mean, like, for what reason? Just, right. Yeah. I mean, it's not, I mean, he's not Charles or Kenny or, or Shaq. He's a fine analyst, but even if it just meant putting him on games or something, you know, shake things up, you see the, they're still going with this Greenberg, Will Bond, just the, the greatest hits, only the hits weren't that great to begin with. You know? <laughs> All right. One more. Love it or leave it. They have started the marathons. We may have done this a year ago at this time of uh, showing the Christmas comedies over and over and over again. Christmas yeah. story is number one in my house. But Christmas vacation gets put on a marathon as well as others. Yeah. Whether it's Home Alone or something else that maybe you like. Love it or leave it. Is there a Christmas movie marathon 
Uh, and, and if so, what is it? Is there a comedy? Is there one that you care about this time of year? Because they've all started and they will over the next couple of weeks, yeah. showing them over and over and over again. Uh, Bad Santa with... Uh, You'll take that one, Billy Bob yeah, Thornton. Yeah. Billy Bob Thornton, the late, great John Ritter, the late, great Bernie Mac. So, uh, yeah, you know, uh, and uh, I don't know who uh, Lauren Graham was in that as well. I think so. Uh, there's also, uh, what was it now? The uh, Santa versus the ice cream bunny uh, is certainly one. You're, you're educating me. I don't know about that one. Yeah, Santa, Santa and the ice cream bunny, I think. There's also, uh, what was it? Oh gosh, the one where Santa Santa Claus versus the Martians, obviously, and then Man, the we're one going, where Santa, we're going deep, audience. I didn't know we were going this deep. Keep keep going. You're gonna wrap it up. I mean, you got yeah. more Santa yeah, well, versus the Martians from what channel? Is that a comedy? Is that the comedy channel? What is no, that? Well, I mean, it's an MST3K uh, movie, but um, there's also the one where Santa's fighting Satan uh, or Puck, I guess was his name. Uh, very a very a uh, 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 graceful satan with a lot of balletic moves did we digress when i was just looking for a christmas story or yeah. home alone or one of those i think it was called santa claus and this is the santa he lives in the north pole he has children from all over the world and uh, all the stereotypes are, are just explicit like literally like cringy stereotypes for all these children from all parts of the world he has a giant machine that's shaped like lips i think as well i don't really know what that's all about uh, this is also another one that was on mystery science theater uh and uh, riff tracks has done their recordings of both of them too and well worth the money i think those two oh. and wizzo the clown riff tracks <laughs> is one of those two wizzo the clown we always we always get back around to mystery science theater and riff tracks and we love we that do. about you all right so that will do it for this edition of the program again as we wind down 2022 we want to say thank you again to rachel bachman of the wall street journal anything else in closing john before we're done before we're good no i will say i'm almost a hundred percent sure those two examples i gave from earlier did happen like i've got a pretty good memory but if I'm wrong, you know, don't uh, don't come after us, right? I mean, I'm I'm like 99.999% sure I remember those things. Well, both of those incidents, I, I'm going to yeah. go with you on that. You're a savant about these things. And by the way, if you're going to prove him wrong, I want to see the proof. I want to see the proof of the episode where it didn't go down like that because right. I'm believing you that it probably did go down like that. Uh, okay, I think we're good. Again, follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, to the SportsMediaWatch.com podcast feed. As uh, we conclude another episode, another week, Christmas will be here soon. New Year's will be here soon as well. For now, we're good. John Lewis, thank you. Have a great rest of the week. Thank you. And again, we thank you for finding us. I'm TJ Reeves. Again, Rachel Bachman of the Wall Street Journal was our guest. Check her out there. We're good for now on the SportsMediaWatch.com podcast. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.